Hello to everyone. <coughs> I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, many thanks uh, to Liz Carmichael and her team for organizing this brilliant conference and inviting me. So my, my, my topic is uh, about uh, historical distortions and uh, about the academic dignity and proper academic conditions in which proper academic works must appear. About the interference of state or government into academic writing, about the creation of the popular imaginations <coughs> by government. So my focus is a medieval history, because uh, exactly this history was taken by Putin, and not only by him, as the origin story of modern Russia. This story, not only origin, yes, this story also inspiring aggression and imperialistic ambitions, because Putin is represented as a gatherer of Russian lands. Well, how did it appear? I would like to start from the one professor to illustrate the case. In 1930 to 1933, Professor Yelhen Tybchenko completed his historical dictionary of Ukrainian language, in which he gave Ukrainian words found in various sources from the 11th century and onwards. Interestingly, Stalin's government, I'm sorry for my English, uh, it's not my native, uh, Stalin's government prohibited him from publishing works earlier than the ones from the 14th century. Professor Timchenko was allowed to publish only the first volume starting from the 14th century, and soon after he was arrested and sent to Gulag concentration camp for five years. He died a few years later. It is an excellent example of how Russian, Russia corrected academic writing for her benefit. In the 1930s, uh, the similar fate fell on many other historians and philologists whose works concerned the medieval history of Ukraine. Sergei Efremov for history of Ukrainian writing, Agatangel Krimsky, essays on the history of the Ukrainian language. So Mikhail Grushevsky, though he was not repressed, but he died uh, in suspect circumstances. The history of Ukraine roots, etc. So the Ukrainian writing was effectively silenced and unfortunately, it's still silent for many worldwide because of the Russian-made information folk. So they were silenced those Russian historians who considered northeastern Russia, like cities of Rostov, Suzdal, or Vladimir, as the home territory of Russian statehood and culture. Alexander Presnyakov, Matvey Lubavsky was repressed and many other historians, his colleagues. 
1929-1931, two short trials in Ukraine and Russia, the so-called case of the Ukrainian Liberation Fellowship and the academic case, respectively, in Russia, caused the mass imprisonments and executions of decent academicians, including many historians. So it was not good for any historian, and not only, yes, to write in the Soviet line, which was Russian by fact. History was a special priority for the government since it was used to justify the official ideology. To what extent this governmental control ran is seen from the words of senior member of the Soviet Academy, Dr. Boris Grekov which he said in 1953, the ideas expressed by Joseph Stalin in work, Marxism and questions of language knowledge, especially about base and super substructure, compel historians to rethink a lot, clarify and revise a lot in their works. Historians of the USSR, all must revise the question of feudalism genesis. So in the USSR, all historical institutions were extremely politicized. Many Soviet officials and propagandists came to their positions after graduating from historical faculties. In this Soviet climate, modern Russian historical vision was secured as the only one possibly possible. However, I would, uh, would uh, not call the Soviet historical school the cradle or the only cradle of the modern Russian vision of history, since the Soviet one was just further development of what had begun in the Russian Empire. So the basics of the historical image of Russia as the most direct descendant of Kiev and Rus was shaped in the 18th and early 19th centuries by historians hired and controlled by Russian crown. So who were the main figures who began to write this kind of narrative? Gerhard Friedrich Müller, historiography of the Russian historian of the Russian historiography of the Russian state and Nikolai Karamzin, royal court historiographer. Throughout the 19th century, it was developed further in the Moscow University and Academy, which were under control of the government. I mean, of course, if you are in the court near Tsar or Caesar, you want to please him because he hired you. And, uh, well, you write what he wants, actually. So, Russian propaganda for a long time claimed that Ukrainian culture was just a subsequent branch of Russian great culture, which allegedly appeared direct, directly from her in the 14th century, when the Polish, Lithuanian, and mainly Russian elements mixed in the Ukraine. But it's not what historically happened. Russia denied the Ukrainian language being the direct descendant of the early Slavonic language, deprived Ukrainians of their medieval history of statehood, 
and represented Ukraine as a comparatively young and secondary culture. Modern Putinism claims that Ukrainian nation appeared only 100 years ago as project of Austrians or Germans or whatever. However, the ancestors of, uh, of the Ukrainians never left Ukraine. And uh, so the modern historical image of Russia as the main descendant of the early Eastern Slav and Slavic state, Rus, was born in highly politicized, non-academic <coughs> conditions. So it must be critically revised for the sake of academic dignity and just. One could see that Russia benefited from this artificially created historical image. After appropriating the medieval history of the Eastern Slavs, Russian culture became more attractive to the outer world, uh, a country with a long recognizable history uh, always has advantages in cultural diplomacy, making its culture more visible to the world. Unfortunately, before this war, Russia succeeded in, in, it for, for in this for a long time and did it at the expense of others. So the Russian historical outlook, this well-known article of Putin on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians is set up in line with Russia's imperial and colonialist history, justifying the renewal of the historical so-called just, by gathering the old Russian lands or conquering Ukraine and cleaning, cleaning, it, cleaning it from Western influence. It represents Putin as a gatherer of Russian lands. Unfortunately, Putin's historical speech reflects what has been presented in Russian literature, academic writing, of course, corrected by state, at the appropriate uh, uh, moments, school textbooks and visual culture for decades. <coughs> this commonly accepted history is responsible for the climate of opinions in modern Russia, which favors Putin and his aggressive policies. <coughs> so at least one of the Slavic culture originated in Ukraine in the times predating any written tradition in this region from the Proto-Indo-Europeans who had come here from rivers of Don and Volga or Caucasus and mixed with local cultures existing in Ukraine and Poland in the Stone Age. So there are two main theories of academic in academic writing, each of which includes Ukraine as a homeland of Slavs, and any of them includes Russia. So the homeland was either in Ukraine or more probably in Western Ukraine and Poland, between Ode, Vistula, and Nita. There are many things uh, proving this, of course, from toponymy to river names uh, to uh, linguistical data, and of course the unbroken evolution of archaeological cultures. Uh, all of this, so this, uh, so there is no evidence 
that Ukrainians once came to their land, as for example, Hungarians did once. From the 5th to 7th century of common era, the Slavs moved from their homeland in several directions. And uh, um, <coughs> in the second half of the first millennium of the common era, expanded Slavic communities began to develop their own early state formations, uh, one of which eventually became known as Kievan Rus, uh, which uh, the Russian official history appropriated in the 18th century. Russian history denies Ukraine its medieval statehood and culture. The Soviets claimed that Ukrainians appeared in the 14th century on the ground of the Kievan Rus remnants, the state which was Russian by its nature, so the Russian culture was the only direct successor. Well, as Dr. Robert Magoche uh, says in the Russian version of the, about the Russian version of the history, quote, the political and cultural traditions of that medieval entity were subsequently carried on most forcefully, uh, forcefully by the elder brother, the Russians, first through the Muscovite state, later through the Russian Empire, and most recently by its Soviet successor state. The Putin's propaganda claims that Ukrainian nation appeared only 100 years ago and developed due to the Bolshevik's Ukrainization policy when Russian nation was, uh, has its long 1,000 years history, going back to the medieval Kievan Rus, where all people from Baltic to Black Sea spoke the same old Russian language, which is mythical too. The concepts of the common Russian language in the Middle Ages and the, uh, in Kievan Rus as the Russian state are both historically incorrect, but uh, neither by historical evidence nor logic. Roughly same, Russian mythology actually filled early medieval Kievan Rus with the early modern or late medieval Muscovite culture, appearance, habits, imaginations, language, whatever, etc. So and it was all in the Soviet and then Russian mass culture of the 20th century. Cinema pictures, literature, and in historical reconstructions, for example, like it's with the reconstruction of Yaroslav the Wise, who was reconstructed with Russian bed, when there was no evidence at all about such bed he had. Uh, unfortunately, modern Western cinema just adopted this Russian pro product. For example, the Vikings TV show used uh, uh, Russian places to reconstruct medieval Kiev. Well, when Rus appeared in Kiev in the late 19th century, the Russian statehood was a thing of a distant future, being initially established in the 12th century, when the medieval state centered in Kiev, Rus penetrated that region and was originally based on non-Slavic Finno-Ugric cultures, subjugated and Christianized by Rus elites. Ivan King Vladimir Monomach, who ruled in the uh, 12th century from 1114 to 1125, called that territory Zalisa, which means terra incognita, literally somewhere beyond the forest. According to a Russian imperial historian, 
The first Russian prince was Andrei Bogolyubsky, who ruled uh, in 12th century. In the 1930s, uh, Soviet scholars reconstructed the face of Bogolyubsky using his skull and discovered that he had had Mongoloid traits. Because it did not correspond with the official history, they began to claim that Bogolyubsky, as a descendant of Vladimir the Baptizer, uh, had a Slavonic uh, uh, cranial shape. Several years ago, Russian historian Igor Danilevsky noticed the illogicality of this conclusion. According to the primary chronicle, well, not Russian, but primary chronicle, uh, Vladimir and his descendants were not Slavs, but had mixed genes from different nations. Scandinavians, Germans, Greeks, of which Slavic ones were a minority, if were at all. Of course, Soviet historians knew it very well from the primary chronicle. It's very well known uh, historical source. But there were topics which were not allowed to write in the USSR. The case with Bogolyubsky shows again how Soviet scholars were ready to falsify history it union it with the ideological and political line of the state, which claimed and insisted on that Bogolyubsky was a Slavic prince from Slavic Rus dynasty. I mean, all the other standpoint would provoke persecution. In reality, Bogolyubsky did not consider Kiev his home, his city or capital. So, in 1169. He sacked and plundered it, devastating churches, and taking away huge booty, including religious relics. <coughs> Nevertheless, it did not prevent Russian Orthodox Church from canonizing him in the 18th century. Well, it leaves another problem about the uh, canonization of the saints. So, in some, in some situations, there are some people uh, could not be canonized because of the government. Uh, so the Russian history must have had a radically different historical narrative with another starting point. Um, so another question. What was the original language of the early Slavs? Soviet and Russian propagandists say the proto-Russian end then old Russians spoken only by ancestors of Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians, which is tricky, uh, so uh, existed. That is tricky in Rome. It was impossible to have such language in conditions. I mean, one language, you know, in conditions uh, uh, when the territory was so vast, one, 1,500 kilometers between Kyiv and Novgorod, and the population was so scarce, scarce with weak communications, natural barriers, and long distances between communities. And uh, so the Dr. Danilevsky also notices this. Also, one should consider the diversity of cultures, including Pina Ugric ones. Numerous original dialects existed even in the homeland, which we can loosely call one language. And the homeland as I showed before, did not include modern Russian territory. In the third century of Common Era, the Proto-Slavic language 
disintegrated into several zones of dialects, at least two, the Proto-German fragmented, uh, at least two, sorry. So one can agree with Byzantine chronicle Procopius of Caesarea, who evidence that, that in the sixth century of common era, Antis and Slovenia, who lived in homeland, these early Slavs, spoke the same language, uh, but that language was fragmented, fragmented in dialects and was not spoken on the territory of modern Russia. During migrations from the 5th to 7th centuries of common era, the original Slavic language changed, absorbing new realities and local languages, thus giving birth to new Slavic languages. The division of Slavic languages is a matter of systematization, of course. If you have many things, you need to synthesize uh, them to have some ordered knowledge. The division into Eastern, Southern, and Western Slavs is just one of the classifications, one of the theories, which, by the way, is based uh, rather on the political than philo philological approach due to the circumstances in which it was fought. Uh, the three uh, or triune classification was shaped from the early 19th century to the early 20th century, as Dr. Tseluk shows, and was based more on geographical locations than linguistic features. Since that time, it, it has provoked much criticism. Um, I would like to quote uh, Dr. Alexander Tsaruk. This approach igno ignores differences within Slavic subgroups. For example, Southern Slavic peculiarities of the Central Slovakian dialects of original transitive status of Slovenian language, etc. The Slavonic studies were especially missed uh, uh, by the identification of the Eastern Slavic language group. If in one, if uh, in other groups, no Slavic language possesses the status of absolute hegemon, in this group, all its peculiarities from the very origin of the three uh, of the three UN, uh, classification and virtually till now are represented by only one language, Russian. The main factor is political. <clears throat> what has led to the wrong interpretation? Superficial understanding of the grammatical system of the Russian language is enough for understanding peculiarities of all Eastern Slavic languages. Well, um, but the Ukrainian and Russian languages are very different. Uh, well, according to some, According to one standpoint, they have only 50% of common, common words, common vocabulary. It is a debatable question to what extent Russian is close to Ukrainian. The factor of the short Slavonic language reveals a certain distance between them. In the 9th century of common era, Cyril and Methodius invented the written language based on the one of the conservative dialects of old Bulgarian language. <coughs> so it's called a Slavonic, Church Slavonic, because it was used only in church and religious literature. With the Christianization of Rus, 
in the uh, 10th century, in 1988, well, uh, this language became widespread in written tradition. In Ukraine, the situation turned out to be a disaster for the spoken language, the old Ukrainian, which could not develop its literary forms because of the domination of the dead George Slavonic. Since the spoken language evolved dramatically since the first century of common era on the basis of which the Church Slavonic was created. Uh, so Ukrainian, although that medieval version of Ukrainian language became hardly compatible with the Church or old Slavonic. In Russia, the situation went radically opposite. Church Slavonic originally and easily mixed with the local dialects close to it due to the long isolation of those tribes. That is why Russian contains more Church Slavonic elements than any other Slavic language in Eastern Europe. There is even opinion that Russian is no more than involved Church Slavonic and that before Church Slavonic Russian tribes did not speak any Slavic language at all, being exclusively Finno-Ugric speakers. Well, that is the most extreme opinion I heard. In any case, due to the phonetical and lexical impact of Church Slavonic as one of the factors and maybe the strongest one, Russian and Ukrainian spoken languages became so different in the late uh, 17th century that in the late 17th century, both nations used interpreters to understand each other and even now, after centuries of crucifixion, the Russians hardly understand or don't understand at all Ukrainian language, unless those Russians have Ukrainian relatives or lived in Ukraine for some period. Thank you for your attention.